Good morning. Uh, thank you. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Oh. We live in a broken, fallen world. I don't know that the evidence has ever been more clear in my lifetime than it is right now. And we just sing about the darkness of our world and how the shadows seem to deepen. And I just want to say a couple of things. I mentioned last week, we are going to work through uh, this racial conversation over time. We're going to create a dialogue that allows us to move in the right direction. But I want to say a couple of things today that the Lord just put on my heart. Um, the more we take a microscope and put it on the problem, the worse the problem seems to get. You notice that? And the reason for that is not that the problem isn't real. The reason for that is that whatever side you tend to land on or in the middle on this whole topic, what we see in our world today, let's just take racism for example, is it is a symptom of a deeper problem. And the fact that we have no unity and we have no reconciliation, the fact that we can't seem to have a conversation with one another is further evidence of the root issue, which is the fallen world and the brokenness and the sinfulness in our hearts, period. And so the more we just focus on the symptom, the further away we get from the real root of the problem. And let me just say this up front, okay? Whether you're a racist perpetrator or the victim of racism, you can't legislate healing. The person who has racism in their heart needs a heart change, and legislation won't change that. And the person who's been the victim of racism needs to be healed, and legislation won't heal that. And as counterintuitive as it may seem to say these words, the answer is found not in taking a microscope and elevating the problem, but taking our focus and putting it on Christ, and he alone is worthy. Amen. He can crush the heart of the sinful person and take the pieces and put it back together into something beautiful. He can take the brokenness that comes, whether it's racism or abuse, suffering in any form. He could take the pieces that are left and pull them together into something beautiful. And so I say that up front. The answer is in Christ alone because the problem is in our sinful brokenness. And that's being evidenced in the world around us regardless of where you land on that. Now, we are gonna record a conversation this week. I have the opportunity to sit down with four people from our church, two are black, two are white, four different stories, four different perspectives, all equally real and valid, and our goal is not to produce a stance, our goal is to model what it looks like to have a dialogue with Christ at the center. How to talk about our differences, regardless of what those differences are, with Christ exalted in the center. And we're gonna record that this week, and we're going to roll that out to you guys. Uh, it'll be available on Facebook and Vimeo and all those different uh, places later on this week. But I just wanna say that up front, I'm so thankful Jason, worship team, for leading us in worship this morning, reminded us not only of the brokenness, but where the healing for our brokenness is truly gonna be found, and that is in Christ and he alone. He alone is worthy to open the scroll. So I wanna say that up front, let you guys know those things. All right, so we are, by no mistake, even though I didn't know it when I originally put this series together, we are stepping into a new sermon series today entitled, uh, The Light in the Darkness. And so we're gonna look at 
this biblical analogy or metaphor of light. And we know that Christ said, I am the light. So we know in some instances, he is the light. We know that he's called us to be the light, both as a corporate collective group of people and also as individuals in our everyday lives. And so we're gonna walk through this together starting today, uh, looking specifically at the role of the church to be a light in the world. And we're gonna talk about how we will never do it out there unless we start doing it in here first. And so we're gonna start in Matthew chapter five this morning, verse 14. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, that, those three verses are gonna be the theme of this entire series. Again, we're gonna focus, first of all, about being the light together as a church in here. We're gonna talk about what it looks like next week to live out that light amongst one another as the people of God. And then after that, we're gonna talk about what it looks like to go be a light in the midst of the darkness in the world around us. And then we're gonna spend about four or five weeks at the end of the series looking at real stories, your stories, of how God has worked through the church to be a light in the midst of your darkness. And that's where we're going uh, this summer. And so you expect to hear these verses again. But a couple of things I wanna point out just right off the bat. First of all, when Jesus says you are the light in the world, it's hard to see it in the original or in the English language, but in the original language, it's the plural. So it would be better translated, you all are the light of the world. So before we get to a place where we can talk about individually how you and I are to go out into the world as a light in the midst of the darkness, the first call is that we together must be the light. Did you catch this metaphor? You're the light of the world and a city on a hill cannot be what? Hidden. And so what is a city on a hill? A city on a hill is a collection of a whole bunch of little lights that come together to create this massive glow. So I, I live out west of the church and we're outside the city limits, so it's kind of the country. It, it gets a little bit dark at night. However, between our house and downtown Fort Worth, there is a small hill and we cannot see the city skyline. But we know it's there. How do we know it's there? Because at night, when you walk outside, you can see what? The glow. You can't hide it, right? You can see the glow. Even though you can't see the city that's on the other side of the hill, you, you know it's there because there's a, this glow. Rain or shine, fog, no fog. You look to the east and you can see the glow of Fort Worth. And so I, I love how Jesus says that a city on a hill, he didn't say it shouldn't be hidden. What does he say? It can't be hidden. There's no way you can hide the lights of the city of Fort Worth unless you took a big bowl and put it over the whole city. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. It reminds me of a couple of other references from Jesus as he refers to the light or refers to the church. In John chapter one, the gospel writer introduces us to Jesus by saying he is the word and the word was in the beginning. He was with God in the beginning. He was God and through him all things were created. And verse four says, in him was the light and that light was the life of men. And then verse five says about that light, that light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot, has not, will not overcome it. You hear that? 
And so we go back to Matthew 5. Not only is it the, are we the light, like a city hidden on a hill that can't be hidden, we're a light like a lampstand, right, that's been lit in a dark room, and you can't hide it. The dark never prevails against the light. The light always wins. Take any dark room, the darkest room you can find, and light one candle, and the light will win every time. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, talking with his disciples, specifically in verse 18, he addresses Peter when he says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the same way that darkness will never prevail against the light, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And so here in Matthew 5, as Jesus addresses his followers, he says, listen, you all, my people, my followers, my church, you all are the light of the world. And just like a city on a hill cannot be hidden, you too will not be hidden. You too will shine bright into the darkness around you. Is there evidence of darkness in the world around us? Yes, there is. At times, does it feel like the shadows are growing darker and darker, darker? Yes, but the light prevails every time, every time. Now, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go um, to the book of Psalms 96 to talk about what it means to truly be the light, the church, God's people glowing brightly here so that we might be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. In Psalm 96, the psalmist is addressing our heart's posture towards God, describing what our worship should look like. I wanna start in the first three verses. Listen to these words. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. Now, three times in those opening three verses, we're commanded to do something. What? Sing to the Lord. One of my favorite commentators on the book of Psalms is Charles Spurgeon. So anytime I'm preaching from Psalms, I always want to know what Spurgeon has to say about whatever verses I'm reading, whatever verses I'm preaching from. And here in these opening three verses, he points out these three commands, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. And he connects it with a Trinitarian view of God, though it's not explicit that he's referring to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says it's no accident that the psalmist commands us three times. I want you to listen to Spurgeon's commentary on, on the, these three verses. Listen to what he says Thrice, that means three times, is the name of the Lord repeated and not without meaning. Is it not unto the three in one Lord that the enlightened nations will sing? Listen to these words. The sacred fire of adoration only burns with fervent flame where the Trinity is believed in and beloved. In other ways besides singing, the blessed Lord is to be blessed. His name, his fame, his character, his revealed word and will are to be delighted in and remembered with perpetual thanksgiving. We may well bless him who so divinely blessed us. 
Now, I love how Spurgeon describes our worship as God's people when he says the sacred fire of adoration. He's describing our worship, our heart's posture towards the Lord. Now think about that. Adoration comes uh, in and out of our lives at different levels, doesn't it? Things that you have affection for. Certain foods you really like. Certain foods you don't like. Certain vacations you really like and certain vacations you're like, meh, I could pass on that. Certain kids that you like and some that you're like, meh, meh. Right, adoration comes to us at different levels. So when we say we have affection for something or we adore something, we mean different things. And listen to this description of our adoration towards the Lord, though. It surpasses the way I feel about food when he describes it as a sacred fire of adoration that only burns with fervent flame. What a beautiful description of the light within us. Our passion for the Lord, our love for God that would burn so bright within us you can't contain it. Begins to sound like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden, doesn't it? And then I love this, and, I, and I, I can't say with certainty that the psalmist meant for us to think of the Trinity here by saying, sing to the Lord three times, but I agree with Spurgeon in this, that that fervent flame only burns bright where the Trinity is believed in and beloved. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. But then he says something here, the psalmist does, and Spurgeon points this out, um, that we are to bless his name. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. How do we bless God? How do we, the recipient of blessings, bless the one who gives blessings? Have you ever thought about that? That seems odd to me. Like, what does he need from us? He lacks nothing. He wants for nothing. I was not created to fulfill some need, some absence of something in God. He's sufficient in himself, so how can I bless him? Well, the answer to that lies in the reality that we are image bearers, created like this mirror. And when God blesses us, when he pours out his love in us, we, like a mirror, reflect that back to him. We bless him. We bless his name. And specifically, we're told to do two things here. Tell of his salvation and declare his glory. This is how we bless the name of the Lord. Telling of his salvation and declaring his glory. So let's start with the first one, telling of salvation. We hear that and it sounds like what we only mean is that you need to tell your salvation story. Now that's a small piece of it, but you can't tell your salvation story without talking about the gospel. I was lost. Christ found me, he called me to himself. And I, and, I, and I came to a place where I believed in his death, burial, and resurrections for my sin. And when I believed in that, he began to work in me and transform me from the inside out. You see, just telling your own salvation story, you have to tell the gospel story. But it's so much more than simply just telling about your salvation experience. It's telling about the gospel. Think about that. We tend to think that the gospel is primarily for those who don't know Jesus. Now, it is true that is the only way to be saved. Hearing the gospel, when you don't know God, you don't know who he is, you may not want to have anything to do with him, yet you hear the gospel, he opens your ears, breaks your heart in such a way that you, right, faith begins to ignite, and you're like, I believe it, and it draws you into salvation. But listen, saints, you need to hear the gospel, if not more, just as much as the person who doesn't know Christ. It's one of the things that I love about our worship team. They come in here and they call us to sing the gospel over one another and to one another. 
Think about that. Each one of us has an inner dialogue. I'd like for you to keep that to yourself, by the way. I don't want to know what you say to yourself. But one of the most powerful things that you can do in your inner dialogue, the things you say to yourself as you coach yourself through life, as you, you have those conversations, well, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Maybe I should be more optimistic. You, know, you have all those conversations with yourself. The most powerful thing you can do to yourself is preach the gospel to yourself. Absolutely. The gospel reminds you, what? That you are paid for. You're bought with a price. You are not your own. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been set free. You will live in eternity in this new redeemed creation with God forever. And so there's the most powerful things we can do is preach the gospel to ourselves. One of the most powerful things we can do in here is what? Preach the gospel to one another. Sing it to one another. So how do we bless the name of the Lord? We tell of his salvation. We see, it's, it's on our lips. We sing of it, we talk about it. But the second thing is that we declare his glory among the nations. And we're gonna get there over the next couple of weeks what that looks like to declare his glory among the nations. But understand this, church. We will never have a, have a light to shine out there unless we first shine bright in here. move to verse four. Verse four, fair warning, is extremely convicting if you'll let your mind begin to understand what the psalmist says. Verse four, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, and that's lowercase g, meaning all other idols, anything else that your heart would worship, Look at five and six with me. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord, Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So let's start with the last word and work our way back to verse four. Sanctuary. You guys understand under the new covenant, this box is not our sanctuary. I don't care what we call it. You call it the sanctuary, the worship center, the chapel. You are the sanctuary now in Christ. God's spirit dwells in you. You're the sanctuary here, okay? So with that in mind, we go back to verse four. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Now, you and I do not have words sufficient enough to worship God at the level he deserves. We don't have emotions strong enough to feel fervently enough affection towards Jesus that is equivalent to what he deserves. Okay, are you with me? Now, that being said, what the psalmist is saying, that our worship together should be proportionate to the worship he deserves. Ouch. Did you see that? The word, the word is great, and we don't get a quantity here. right? The psalmist doesn't tell us, as long as you sing this loud, your worship's good enough. He just says, hey, let's start with God. Great is the Lord. That's a big statement. There's no one higher, no one more majestic, no one more powerful, no one more loving. Great is the Lord, so our worship should be in proportion to that when he says, greatly to be praised. So the worship in my heart should be proportionate to who he is. How often do you and I walk into this place with a ho-hum perspective towards worship and what is, we are reflecting is a little bitty God. This is the idea that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all our soul, all our strength. Everything that you have is not enough. But when we gather together as his people and you bring your worship and I bring mine, we begin to reflect a great God. 
A God who is, according to this description, full of splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. And where are these things? In his sanctuary. That's in me and you. Think about that. Does your personal worship, if we extracted you, I'm not just talking about your singing, all that worship is, okay? If we extracted you out of this room alone, by yourself, would you reflect a God who is worthy of splendor and majesty and strength and beauty? Does the worship in your sanctuary reflect that God? Think about it. And I love what verse five says. It's this beautiful reminder that when you bring all you've got and I bring all that I've got, and even though it's not sufficient to, to, to be in proportion with who he is, when we bring it together, something happens. Our hearts turn away from useless things. Those little bitty gods that we worship in our everyday life, we begin to loosen our grip on those things to take hold of Christ together. When I hear you sing, when I see your passion for God, when I see your passion for his word, when I see his spirit moving in you, it moves in me. And I begin to remind myself and you remind me and hopefully I remind you that the things that we latch onto in this world Monday through Saturday are not worthy. They're not. Again, I turn to Spurgeon's words here on these few verses. He says, praise should be proportionate to its object. Do you get that? It should be proportionate. However much God means to you, should show up in your worship towards him. Therefore, let it be infinite when rendered unto the Lord. There's no ceiling to it. There's no top to it. We cannot praise him too much, too often, too zealously, too carefully, too joyfully. He deserves that nothing in his worship should be little, but all the honor rendered unto him should be given in largeness of heart with the utmost zeal for his glory. I was talking with a pastor this past week of another church and we were just talking about reopening and they're about on the same timetable we are and we were just talking about, you know, well, how many of your folks have come back? And I said, about 50% of our folks are here in person, about 50% are online. And he was giving me kind of their numbers as well. And he was saying, you know what my great, one of my greatest concerns is? We already have a large portion of our people. And he was talking about his church. I wasn't talking about you. He said, I have a large portion of our people who like when summertime hits, they check out anyway and don't show back up until school starts. I was like, yeah, I've seen that before. He said, so here's my fear. Three months into summer, then we go into summer. It'll be six months before I'll see those people again. And they're gonna get out of the habit of coming. I, I'm so worried. We may not see a large portion of our church again, right? And so you know how easy it is to get out of the habit of, of showing up, right? So why is it so easy to get out of the habit of making this a priority, making this important? And this is just what I'll offer up for you because... Every week, day after day, our hearts forget the goodness of God and turn to worthless things. That's why. It's not because you don't miss me enough and I don't miss you enough. Matter of fact, if you come to church primarily to see one another, it's not gonna be too long before we don't see you at all. Why? Because as much as I love you, as much as you love me, we are not worthy enough to draw one another away from the things in this world. It's gonna take something bigger than that something greater in value than just you and me. It's a heart issue. It's an idol issue. Something else has become more important, whether it's our comfort, our ambition, our hobbies. Something besides Christ has become our object of worship. Seeing people is not the primary reason we gather in worship. 
The moment we make this about seeing people primarily is the moment our desire to be here begins to diminish. Listen, you can find people gathered together anywhere. What makes this a gathering of the sanctuaries is that we come into this place to exalt Christ and him alone. To say once again, hey, I know I just spent the last six days gravitating towards or even just chasing wholeheartedly after cheap trinkets of this world. But when I gather back together with you, you remind me that only Christ is worthy. And so once again, I let go of the stuff and I walk back into this world empty-handed other than that which I have in Christ. And guys, listen, we need to do that on a weekly basis that is, a, a, that is a, a format we get out of creation. Six days God worked, the seventh day he rested, the, the Sabbath is holy, it's the day. We gather together as his people to acknowledge the Lord. We see that in the New Testament church. They got together a lot throughout the week in each other's homes, sharing meals, talking about the Lord, living and walking in biblical community. But once a week, they gathered together as the people of God, as they could. Now, let me just address something really quick. If you're at home, viewing at home, what I don't want to happen is for you to walk away from here feeling guilty like you're not doing something right, okay? We understand why right now there's a specific time for social distancing for some. Here's what I do hope for you. If you're watching at home, I hope what's happening right now is just a growing hunger to be here. That's what I hope is happening. That's it. No guilt, no shame, no embarrassment, but this growing hunger. But listen, a right growing hunger not a growing hunger to see me or see the other folks who were here in person, but a growing hunger to come together with God's people to exalt Christ. That's why we gather together. Now, verse seven through nine, we're gonna get three more commands. So the first three commands were what? Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. Now, verse seven, ascribe to the Lord. O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord. Glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord, the glory, do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. So the command is ascribe. Now, we misuse this word in English. Oftentimes we use it as a synonym to subscribe. What do you ascribe to? Well, the word, that's not what the word actually means. It's different from subscribing. To ascribe to something, um, in, especially in this Hebrew word, means to come to something or to give something. And I think both are implied here, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, okay? So it's not the idea of subscribing to something. It's the idea of coming to something, being drawn to something in order to give something, okay? And so it's the same idea in the New Testament of the word koinonia. We translate that oftentimes fellowship. We use it as a noun. We talk about the fellowship, the koinonia. Um, but the idea as a verb is that it's, it's the coming together of joint participation in bringing a joint gift. You kind of see the connection here between koinonia and this Hebrew word. But look at what the psalmist says there in verse eight. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. It's both. It's bring a gift as you come. It's the coming together to bring something together. Now think about that. Now apply that to our worship. Apply that to our praise. All of us individual sanctuaries, we come together. Whether it's in this box or the new box we're building or it's out on the church lawn, we come together to what? To bring a common gift of worship, a common gift of praise. That's what ascribe means. Come together to give this to God. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Now I wanna talk about that wording for a minute. 
So the, the word peoples, plural, sounds kind of odd, doesn't it? Because the word itself is already plural. So all throughout your Old Testament, when this word gets rendered in English, it's gonna be peoples. Okay, so the word people is a group of people. It's plural. But when you see peoples, what you're talking about are multiple groups. You with me? So if you just have people, it's just one group. But this word means multiple groups of people, so therefore you have peoples. But it's interesting because not only do we have peoples mentioned here, but we have families. So the Hebrew nation, the people who are the first recipients of this psalm, the Israelites, they, they organized themselves as groups of people, and then these groups of people were based on what tribe you were in. Then within that tribe, you had different family units. It begins to give us this beautiful portrait of the church today. So the church, what is the church? It is the gathering of God's people, but also in a, in a sense of eternity, the church, those of you who are in Christ right now, you are the kingdom of God on the ground right now. Okay, so there have been many who've come before you as the kingdom of God. There will be many who come after us, Lord willing, until he returns. You are the kingdom of God on the ground right now in West Fort Worth. You represent one family. All of us together begin to form a larger group. And all across the globe, you have these groups, these churches that come together as the peoples. Here's why I'm pointing that out. Do not forsake the significance of the local church. It's, it's, it's incredibly important. It's incredibly sacred to God. The same way he organized the nation of Israel into tribes and into families. Solid rock, this is your family. The local church, this is you. Kingdom of God on the ground. We are the light of the world, church. Solid rock church is placed right here in this place, in this time. You're a part of it as a sanctuary to come together with the people of God to be a light, like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden from the city around us. And we are to ascribe, to come together to give God the offering of our worship. Now, implied in this is also like in the New Testament, even like when they collected money, that was part of this koinonia. But listen to me. Our physical offering means nothing to the Lord if not accompanied by the offering of our hearts. Hear me on that. Your money, your volunteerism, your giving to other people, your serving other people, all good things, but mean nothing if not accompanied with your heart. Worship starts in your heart, church. That's where the light of the world starts, in your heart. Now let's end with verses 10 through 13. Verse 10 begins, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This beautiful ending here reminds us that as these small little families of the kingdom here, as we gather together as a church, these small little gatherings of small little fires, small little embers, small little sanctuaries, we're simply joining what creation is already doing. And so this is not just about singing. Is singing commanded? Yes. Some of you sing better than others. Could you sing a little louder? Because we're all commanded to sing. 
Some of us are comfortable with it, some of us are not. I get it. But we're commanded to what? To sing to the Lord. To bless his name, to declare his glory, to sing of his salvation, and even to declare to the nations his goodness. And just so we don't think that this is just an Old Testament principle that doesn't apply anymore, a couple of verses from the New Testament, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. When we gather together to sing, this is a trick question, by the way, who's the audience? Just think about it. Who's the audience? Who are we singing to? And before you answer it, it's a threefold audience. First and foremost, who is our audience? Christ, Jesus. He's the only one worthy. But did you know that I'm also singing to you and you're singing to me? Have you ever stopped singing in worship to listen to the saints sing and it just stirs something within you? That's what Ephesians and Colossians is saying. Sing to one another. You know what? I have to sing to myself too. Why did the words of that song like break me? Both services, by the way, when I come up on stage, I'm just a blubbering crybaby today. Why? Because as you guys were singing, I was kind of hearing you, but I was singing these words to myself today. Singing them to the Lord, singing them to you, but I was also singing them to me. So asking us, do you believe these things? Do you believe this about Christ? Do you believe this about the world? Do you believe this is where our hope is found? And so we are to sing and to address one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So I want to end here today. Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. The church is the light of the world, but before we can be a bright, shining light to the world around us, we must first knit our hearts together in worship, turning away from useless things, and turning our hearts together to declare the preeminence of Christ. And what we mean by that is he alone is worthy. I wanna pray for us now as we get ready to respond. I'm gonna ask our worship team, if you guys are ready just to come on and lead us in a time of responding. If there's something going on in your heart today that you would like somebody to pray over, and we, uh, as we've been doing, our prayer partners won't be up the front, but our pastors will be. We'll be down front. We'd be honored to pray with you. If you're here today and you've never taken a step of faith towards trusting in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, we want you to do that today. If you want to talk with somebody, again, our pastors will be down front. Our hope and our prayer for you is that before you leave here today, you would take a step of faith to trust in Jesus as your Lord, your Savior. Well, let's pray together and we will respond. Father, we thank you. Oh, God, we thank you that you are worthy. And God, we confess that our words are insufficient. God, the English language, there's no language on earth that is sufficient enough to declare your glory big enough to be equivalent to who you are. So Father, the best we can do is bring everything that we have, everything that we are, bring it together, join together, knit our hearts together to worship. And so Father, we do that today. God, we 
confess that our emotions, our, our adoration is not strong enough. But Father, we bring that together with the fellow saints of God to declare our adoration of Jesus for what he has done for us and in us. And Father, we confess as well that we have allowed our hearts to latch on to useless, worthless things. Most of us, if not all of us, have done that in the last seven days. And so once again, we turn loose of the things of this world to take hold of Christ. So Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would move through this room, through our hearts, convict us of our sins, heal us where we are broken, tear us down where we are prideful and arrogant, draw us to Jesus today. We pray this in his name.